We've had a great day today. Uh, good good uh, number present, good singing. Oh, no, don't, don't know about the preaching. Don't make any claims <laughs> to the preaching, but uh, had a really good day and uh, it's been uh, encouraging to me and I hope it has to everyone else. Just want to begin tonight by just thinking about a few, I think, maybe qualities that we find in God or some just ideas that are associated with God. For example, in Genesis chapter 17, God speaks to Abraham and he identifies himself as the Almighty. I am God Almighty. And there are other places in the Bible where that expression is used, God Almighty, that description, or words to that effect that suggest that God is, is powerful. He's Almighty. He can do whatever can be done. And for example, Isaiah 46 and in verse 10, declaring, God declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. (laughs) If I plan it, I'll do it. He is God Almighty. Whatever can be done, He can do. There is nothing that happens outside of God's will. Just our second observation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. So nothing happens outside of God's will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. He is sovereign over all. He rules over all, in other words. Sometimes we use that word sovereign. He's sovereign over all. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, He's Uh, described as the Lord of heaven and earth. That suggests that He's sovereign. He's Lord. He rules over heaven. He rules over earth. He is sovereign over all. We might also suggest that He controls all things, or He is in control of all things would be a better way to say that. Again, we see that in Isaiah 46, the passage we read just a moment ago, God declares the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I have spoken it. Truly, I will bring it to pass. And so, God is in control of all things. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus indicates that not not even a sparrow falls to earth apart from the Father. And so he he knows even when the the smallest bird falls to the ground. And so nothing happens outside of God's control. He's in control of all things. Every Bible student would agree with all of those things. God is almighty. Uh, He can do whatever can be done. Nothing happens outside of His will. He's sovereign over all. He's in control. He's in control of all things. And again, every Bible student would agree with those statements. And yet, many Bible students are divided over those statements. What does it mean to say that nothing happens outside of God's will? What does that mean? Nothing happens outside of God's will. To what degree does God exercise His rule and His sovereignty? When we say that God is in control of all things... 
Do we mean that God controls all things? Is that, is that what we mean? What, is, what do we mean when we say God is in control of all things? And so those questions are answered differently by different Bible students. Some people argue that God dictates all things that occur, that God has decreed before the foundation of the world, that God has eternally decreed exactly what will happen, everything that will happen, every detail of everything that will happen has been decreed by God. And that's what it means that God's in control of all things because God controls all things. Others, however, argue that God hasn't exercised His rule in this way, that God does control all things, but in a manner that allows us to make real choices. And so God is in control, but within that control, we're able to make real free choices according to our, our, our will. And so that means some things happen that God isn't pleased with, or it isn't His will that those things happen. Well, the Bible can't teach both of those things, can, can it? That God is not only in control, but God controls everything, every movement God controls. And that we have the free will to make real choices. The, the Bible can't teach both of those things. They're, they're inconsistent with each other. They're really contradictory to each other. But the Bible doesn't teach contradictory things. The, the Bible is consistent in what it teaches. And so that's going to be our question for tonight. Which of those is supported by the teaching of the Bible? So we're going to spend a little bit of time with that. Has God predestined everything? Has God decreed everything that happens, every event, every movement? Or do we have the free will to make real choices? When I say real choices, I mean... We're not going to argue that God has predetermined that I will, in my free will, make this choice. You know, We're not going to argue something like that. We have a real choice. And we can really choose this or that. John Calvin said, Nothing happens but what He, God, has knowingly and willingly decreed. Nothing happens but what God has decreed. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who died just a few years ago, uh, uh, theologian, theologian of some note in the Calvinist tradition, good, very strong academic credentials and experience and all of that. But he says, all things occur because God wills them to occur. Everything happens because God willed that particular thing to happen is the idea. Well, we just want to entertain that thought a little bit tonight. First thing that we'll note is, some things have been predetermined by God. There's no argument about that. That God has decreed that some things take place. For example, God promised Abraham that he would make of his descendants a great nation. Well, he did that. God didn't predetermine that. That they would inherit the land of Canaan and possess it and live in it. Well, that, that came to pass according to God's predetermined plan. And also that in his descendant and his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And yes, that, that was predetermined by God. And there are other things that are predetermined by God as well. Uh, the rise and fall of certain nations. The, the coming of Cyrus. We've been studying Isaiah or just recently studied Isaiah. We talked about the role of uh, Cyrus in God's plan. And God predicted that Cyrus would come along and he would allow the people to leave Babylonian captivity and go back to uh, their, their homeland. So that, that was predetermined 
by God. The birth of Jesus Christ was determined by God. The death of Jesus. Here's what Peter says about the death of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Hard to argue with that, isn't it? (laughs) And so, yes, God has predetermined and decreed that certain things will happen. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the final resurrection of the dead, the final judgment. All of those things have been determined by by God. But the Scriptures also indicate that God has not predetermined or decreed all things that have occurred and all things that will occur. And it teaches that sometimes by implication, but teaches it nonetheless. And so I want to talk about just one of those implications. Look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, you can just pick up in verse 1 and read down through several verses. And just think about this passage in light of our question. Has God predetermined everything that's going to happen? And so let's begin in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house. What the potter's house is, is he's making pottery. He's, he's got his wheel and he's got his clay and spinning the wheel and forming the clay maybe into a, a bowl or a pitcher or something like that. So go down to the potter's house and uh, there I will announce my words to you. So I went to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house, and this is what he sees. He sees the potter. He's got a lump of clay. He's going to make something out of it. Let's say he makes a bowl out of it. But as he's making the bowl, something happens, and and it's really, it's ruined. It really doesn't come out very well. And so what he decides to do is make something different. Make a different kind of vessel. It's not the vessel that he started out making. He changed his mind and he decided to make something else. And so he made a pitcher out of it or something like that. It's verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down or to destroy it, But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from evil, I will relent concerning the calamity that I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. But if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. And so you see what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I can do with Israel like the potter did with the clay. And so, I'm going to make of Israel a vessel of blessing. But if you rebel against me and disobey me, I'll change my mind about my actions toward you. And instead of blessing, I will punish you. And here's a nation over here, it's very ungodly, it's idolatrous, it's immoral. And so I've decided to bring my judgment down upon it, but it repents. I'm going to change my mind about my actions toward that nation, and I'm going to bless it. Does that sound like God has predestined and predetermined and decreed everything that's going to happen? 
That passage suggests to us that God can change His mind and does change His mind about things. He says there in verse 10, If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. And so here by implication, the Bible is teaching us that we have some ability to determine our fate. We can do evil or we can do good, and we might start out doing good and turn toward evil. And of course, God will deal with us accordingly. Or we might start out evil and repent and do good, and God, in that case, will, will bless us. And so God changes His mind. Here's a good example of that very thing. Look at the book of Jonah. You might have already uh, thought ahead and thought about this example. But uh, remember, Jonah is told by God, go to the city of Nineveh. It's a very evil city, wicked city, and cry out against it. He doesn't want to go at first, and so he boards a ship for Tarshish. And remember that story, the, the storm uh, comes... Uh, comes uh, on the sea, it endangers the ship. They throw Jonah overboard. He's swallowed by the great fish, spits him out on dry land, and God comes to him again and tells him again a second time to go to Nineveh and cry out against it. And the second time, he does. Goes to Nineveh and, and preaches. And his sermon is, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God says, I'll give you 40 days. <laughs> in 40 days, my plan is to overthrow the city. I'm going to destroy it. Well, listen to what is said. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, and so forth. They're showing their contrition over their sin and all of that. And then verse 9, he says, Who knows, God might turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented, changed His mind concerning the calamity with which He declared He would bring upon them, and He didn't do it. When did He make that change? When He saw their deeds. So up to that point, God was determined, I'm going to overthrow the city. Oh, wow, they've repented. I'm going to change my, you know, change my attitude toward the city of Nineveh. Well, that's just exactly what he talked about in Jeremiah chapter 18. If a nation or a kingdom, in this case a city, is evil but repents, well then I'll relent. I'll change my way of thinking about that city. Someone might respond, but, but doesn't the Bible say that God doesn't change His mind? Well, yeah, there are a few places, a couple of places where that statement is made. For example, in Numbers chapter 23 and in verse 19, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not make it good? And so, and so this suggests that, 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 that God will do what He has said He will do. He's, he's not going to change. He's not going to, to repent. 
Same kind of thing is said over in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and, and verse 29. Just very similar kind of statement that God, God's not a man that He should lie. God's not a man that He should change or repent. But God will perform what He says He will perform. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29. Let me, let me get into 1 Samuel instead of 2 Samuel. It might uh, read a little bit better. Verse 29, also the, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should change his mind. Well, what, are, what are we to make of that? Well, it's true that God doesn't arbitrarily change his mind. He, he doesn't just say a thing and then, well, let's say, I think I've changed my mind about that. And so God doesn't arbitrarily change his mind about his plans or what he has said that he's going to accomplish. He will always act in a manner consistent with his character. So that's important to remember. God will always act in a manner consistent with his character. And he's not going to change from that. But part of that character is, if a nation repents, I will relent. That's his character. Here's a nation that's evil. They repent. They want to do what's right. Okay, well, I'm not going to punish them. I'll, I'll bless them. Is God going to change? Well, no, God is always going to act in a manner consistent with His character. When people repent, He relents. He, he turns. Uh, in this sense, God doesn't change. And so that's Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. God, I, I'm the Lord, I do not change. And of course, if there are some things about which He will absolutely not change His mind... <laughs> And so he wasn't going to change his mind about sending Christ into the world. He wasn't going to change his mind about raising Christ from the dead. He's not going to change his mind about the resurrection of the dead. He's not going to change his mind about the final judgment. But within all of that, there are times when a person who repents, well, God changes his mind about how he's going to deal with that person. Well, how, how can that be? If everything has been predetermined, everything has been decreed, how can God base His actions upon what we do? We do, and then God responds. Here's another observation that implies that God hasn't predetermined all things. If He has, if God has predetermined all things, everything that has happened has been decreed by God. It happens because God makes it happen. Doesn't that make God responsible for all the sin and evil in the world? You know, God has decreed all things that happen. Nothing happens outside the will and the control of God. Doesn't that make God responsible for evil and sin? Because we sure got a lot of that in the world. <laughs> now, that's contrary to Scripture, isn't it? James chapter 1, verse 3, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God, verse, verse 70, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so God is not the source of evil. God is the source of good. He gives good things. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God's not responsible for the evil and the sin in the world. We're responsible for that because we have the free will to choose, and we've chosen as a, as a race, chosen to rebel against God, and we have brought sin in the world by the influence of God's archenemy, Satan. 
Now, God isn't responsible for evil. If human beings have free will and have chosen sin and now suffer the harmful consequences of their choices. A third uh, implication uh, that we have free will, that God hasn't determined everything that has taken place. God would not be just if He holds people responsible for their sin, consigns them to an eternity in hell, although He is the one who made them incapable of doing anything other than committing their sin. Do you follow that? That might be a little complicated. How can that be just? For me to hold you responsible for your sin, consign you to an eternity in hell, when I'm the one that pre-programmed you to sin in the first place. That's not just, is it? And yet, Genesis 18, verse 25 says, the judge of all the earth will do what's right. So all of those things imply to us that God hasn't preset, predetermined, decreed everything that takes place. Here's a fourth implication. Think about this. If God has predetermined everything that takes place, do your prayers make any difference to God? If God has determined everything that's going to happen in the future, it's already been settled, God's already fixed it. It's in place. Do our prayers really make a difference? Do our prayers really matter? We referred to R.C. Spruill a moment ago. Here's what he said from, it's from an online article he wrote. Does prayer make any difference? Does it really change anything? Someone asked me this question, only in a slightly different manner. Does prayer change God's mind? My answer brought storms of protest. I simply said, no. Our prayers do not change God, cannot change God's mind. Prayers, I, in fact, if God has already predetermined everything that's going to happen, our prayers can't change anything. It's already been set. Jonathan Edwards, uh, preacher of 18th century, I think, says, speaking after the manner of men, God is sometimes represented in Scripture as if, as if, he were moved and persuaded by the prayers of His people. Yet it is not to be thought that God is properly moved or made willing by our prayers. Now I know when you read the Scripture, sometimes it sounds like God is moved by our prayers, but He's really not. We shouldn't think that He, that he is. And so there, there are those who say, really, that you know, prayers really don't make that much difference, really don't make any difference. Of course, if everything has been predetermined, then God has predetermined that we're going to pray thinking that our prayers do make a difference. <laughs> Talk about convoluted. <laughs> Get into things like that. The Scriptures teach that God is moved by our prayers. You remember in, uh, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel persuade Aaron, Moses' brother, to make a golden calf. They do. They, they worship it. God is very displeased with that. And he tells Moses, look, I'm going to destroy this people and I'll raise up a nation from you. And Moses beseeches him, intercedes for the people. And listen to what Psalm 106, as it sort of looks back on that occasion, says about that occasion. Psalm 106, verse 23, Therefore, God said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? 
God said, I'm going to destroy them. And if Moses had not pleaded with God, that's what he would have done. Yeah, that, that does sound like Moses' prayer made a difference to God. And God changed his actions based on the prayer that Moses prayed. Look at Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 25 here. You might remember the episode when David numbered the people contrary to God's will. He made an error, of course, and he numbered the people. And God was not, God was not pleased with that. 2 Samuel 24, I think, I might, did I say 25? It should be 24. And I want to look especially at verse 25. David goes and makes a sacrifice. God sends a plague among the people, and people are dying. It's really because of David's sin. David has the opportunity to go to a certain place and make a sacrifice and, and stop the plague. And verse 25 says, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by the prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. It's pretty plain, isn't it? God was moved by the prayer. That, that's, that's straightforward. Pretty plain. God was sending a plague. And when the prayer was made, well, then he relented, changed his approach. Look at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 22. Just another illustration of the, the power of prayer, that, that prayer does make a difference with God. Verse 30 and 31. God says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the walls. Of course, he's... Uh, very frustrated with Israel and their sin and so forth. And uh, he's uh, going to send an invading army to, to punish them. But he says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus I poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them with a fire of, of wrath. Their way I brought upon their heads, declares the Lord." The, the implication is, I looked for a man who would, who would stand in the breach, and if I had found one, I wouldn't have dealt with the land this way. I couldn't find anybody to do that, and so, yes, I carry through with the destruction. And, and, and so, yes, our prayers do matter to God. They do make a difference to God. God can be entreated, and our prayers can persuade Him to act in a different way. James chapter 5, of course, you might have already been thinking about this, this passage. James chapter 5 and verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And so, has God decreed everything? All of these, all of these considerations suggest not. That God, God does change His mind at times. Uh, the, Jeremiah chapter 18 and the story of the potter suggests that. God, God isn't responsible for sin. We're responsible for bringing sin into the world. God, God isn't unjustly going to condemn people for doing what He programmed them to do in the first place. Our prayers do matter to Him. And so all of those imply that God, uh, that God has not eternally settled the future and fixed it in, in an immovable way. And so the next question is, does God predestine individuals to be saved and lost? And so we know that God doesn't predestine every event. Well, what about comes to individual salvation and uh, individuals being lost? Well, it seems to me pretty clear from the Scriptures that we have the ability to choose. After all, 
Genesis, uh, Joshua chapter 24, God says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose you this day. Choose for yourselves today. You make the choice as to who you will serve. And so there's that appeal. You choose. You have the ability to make the choice you choose. Or if you go back to chapter uh, 30 of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, find a very similar statement. Uh, down in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live and your descendants. Again, straightforward. You, you make the choice. Choose life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 4. We'll begin in verse 3 where the sentence begins. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all men to be saved. Now, God has eternally decreed that only these will be saved and these won't be saved. There's a disagreement as to whether God predestines these to be saved and predestines those to be lost, or if He just predestines these to be saved and leaves those to be lost. But God wants everybody to be saved. He desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Have you thought about 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9? 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to respond. He wants everyone to come to repentance and be saved. Now, God has predestined certain ones to be saved. And He predestined those all the way back from the foundation of the world. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? Well, He only died for those who God chose, right? But we've already read from 1 John chapter 2 this evening, which says He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Everyone, everyone sins can be covered and atoned for by the blood of Christ. If you go back to that 1 Timothy chapter 2 passage that we read a moment ago and look a little bit further, it says that Christ gave Himself a ransom for all, for everyone. Not just for the elect, but He gave His, his life a ransom for all. So how can these be true if God, according to His good pleasure, has predestined certain people to be saved and others lost? So all of these considerations suggest to us that, that we have free will. Now, you might think, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> it, it makes us responsible, doesn't it? I and you and everybody in here is responsible for their relationship with God. We're, we're responsible. And so we will either accept that responsibility and come to God through Christ or we'll reject Him. That's our choice and God will deal with us accordingly. Aren't there some passages that say we're predestined to salvation? Yeah, yeah, there, there are some. We looked at one this morning that is sometimes used, John chapter 15 and verse 16. Now, I, I, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Remember that, that statement? Jesus is speaking to the apostles in the upper room. Remember that? Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and so forth. 
You didn't choose me, I chose you. Well, again, think about the context in which the audience and, 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 and the speaker, fundamental rules of interpretation. Who is speaking and who is speaking spoken to? Here he is with the apostles and he says to him, now I chose you. We talked about that this morning. I chose you, I've appointed you, the apostles, to go out and preach and bear fruit. And so it's not a statement just made to a general audience. Ephesians chapter 1, look at that passage, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and He predestined us to adoption as sons. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to uh, to be adopted by God as His children. Yes, God did predetermine that all those in Christ would belong to Him that He would accept into His family, into His fellowship, all those who are in Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. But we have the free will to enter into Christ or not. I like to use the example of Rahab to illustrate the point. Children of Israel, the spies go into Jericho, they spy out the land. Remember Rahab takes them in, they find shelter in, in her house. She makes an agreement with them. They make an agreement with her. She becomes a believer in God, and they say, and she, she appeals to them to spare her and her family when the people of Israel destroy the city. It's okay. We'll, we'll make a deal with you. We will save everybody that's in your house when we come into the city. Everybody in your house, they're good. We'll protect them. Now, if they're outside the house, we, we don't guarantee anything about that. You've got to be in the house. You say, okay, all right, I'll take that deal. And so in Joshua chapter 6, they come into the house, they come into the city, and they come to, they, uh, they come to Rahab's house. And the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel, like a Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> here's my mother, here's my father, here's brother number one. All of these people in the house. Sounds like a pretty crowded house, doesn't it? But see, they had the free will to get in the house or not. And then there may have been some, Rahab says, look, if you want to be saved when the Israelites come, you need to get in my house. I've made a deal with them. They're, they're going to protect. Ah, oh, yeah, you're full of baloney. You know? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Well, no, no guarantee that they'll survive. Got to be in the house. It's their free will to get in the house. The, the plan was predetermined. Every person in the house. Okay, but you've got the free will to get in the house or not. Everyone in Christ is going to be accepted by God. But see, we can decide whether to be in Christ or not. Romans chapter 9, we'll deal, try to deal with that quickly. It would take a long time to deal with some of these thoroughly, and Romans chapter 9 is one of those. But in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, Paul says, So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, sometimes if you look at passages out of their context, you, you can uh, reach a, you know, a faulty conclusion. So th- this, this is a case in point. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has 
mercy. What, what is the it that Paul refers to there? Well, if you go back and look at the passage from the beginning, you'll see that it's discussing God's right to include Gentiles among His people, to accept Gentiles as Gentiles among His people. He's not discussing the predestination of individuals to eternal life. And so, does God have a right to, to include the Gentiles among His people as Gentiles without re, uh, requiring them to undergo circumcision and keep the Sabbath and the diet and all of that? Well, yeah, God, you see, God can choose to include whoever He wants to include. It's not, well, the Gentiles are so evil. doesn't matter. If God wants to include the Gentiles, He's have every right to include the Gentiles. He can do that according to His will. In fact, if you look a little bit later in this same section of Romans, verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so whoever, whether among Gentiles or Jews, calls on the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. That's, that's the point. So it's not discussing the predestination of individuals to eternal life or eternal damnation. He's discussing God's right to include Gentiles. So that whoever among them wills to call upon the Lord will be saved. God elects whomever He will. The question is, whom has God willed to elect? And the answer given in this passage is, all who call on His name, whether among Jews or Gentiles. Well, we'll, we'll conclude. A few concluding observations. You know, everyone lives their lives as if they had free will to choose between options. That's the way we all live. Everyone lives their lives as if they had free will to choose between options. We look forward. We take measures to make good decisions. We weigh all the possibilities, all the consequences. I want to make the right decision. We kind of fret about it sometimes. And we all live our lives as if we had the ability to make real decisions. We discipline our children to teach them to make good choices. Now, I wonder if people who believe that God has predestined everything that happens bothers to discipline their children. <laughs> you see, we're disciplining our children to encourage them and teach them, you need to make good choices. We train prisoners to make better decisions when they're released. Why don't we do these things? If all actions are predestined, why don't we just throw up our hands as parents, resign ourselves to the bad behavior of our children, and just say, well, you know, God's ordained it. It's God's, it's God's choice. I can't change what I can't change. We don't act that way, do we? <laughs> no, we, we go to great lengths to teach our children to make good decisions, to make good decisions ourselves. Why go through the anguish of fretting over decisions it seems that this would really involve God in something of a charade to me. Because see, it seems as though I have the ability to choose. It's just a charade. God has predestined me to think that I have the ability to choose. When I really don't have the ability to choose at all. Hmm. Well, that, that seems to me to be a problem. God is in control but he doesn't control everything. Be like a parent who's in control of his children, but allows them to make their own choices within his control. 
In fact, we consider it pretty bad parenting for a father to micromanage every little detail of the child's life. That's, that's not a good parent, is it? A parent can be in control of his children, and yet within that control, allow them to make their own decisions. God controls the world like a master chess player controls a game against an inferior opponent. That's an illustration that I like to use. I've used it many times. You've probably heard it before. Chuck's a master chess player. I'm a novice. I'm a beginner. We sit down to play. Chuck gives me the first move. You can have the first move. I move the pawn out. He moves. From that point on, he's in complete control of the game. He moves me exactly where he wants me to move, and he beats me. Now, I have the free will to move those pieces wherever I want, but he's in control of the game. Well, that's, that's the way God is. We, we're in our life, we have the ability to choose, but God's in control of the game. Even though within the game, we have the free will to make choices. And the last point I will make is that God will exercise His rule ultimately in the judgment. Romans chapter 14 says that we will all appear or all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. God will exercise His rule ultimately in the judgment. And that's where He will once and for all impose His will on all of us. And we'll all confess that He is Lord. Is God Almighty? Yes. Does anything happen outside of His will? Well, no, not outside of His permissive will. But within that will, He permits us to make free will choices. Now, God has has, uh, prescribed certain things to happen, and some of those are not going, to be, not going to be changed. But nothing happens outside of God's will. Is God sovereign over all? Yes. Is God in control of all things? Yes. Yet He exercises these things in a way that allows us the free will to make real choices, including choosing, to, choosing Him or rejecting Him. And He will judge us accordingly based on the choice that we, that we make. Well, that's an interesting subject. And it's, it's a pretty deep subject. <laughs> it's pretty challenging. And I uh, hope that we've at least done it some justice tonight. At least to maybe uh, uh, peaked a little uh, thought about it. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we bow before you as our Father, our loving Father. You've invited us to pray. You've asked us to come before you in prayer. You've promised that you will hear us as your children. And so, Father, we ask you to hear our prayer tonight. We're so thankful that you're a loving Father, that we can come to you in prayer, that you will listen to us, and that our prayers matter to you. Our prayers make a difference to you. And so, Father, we pray that you'll do what's in our best interest, that you'll care for us, that you'll provide the things we need, that you'll guide us along the way, that we'll be open to your guidance and that we'll follow you and um, go in the way that we should go. We're thankful for the word that you've given us. Help us, Father, to study it and to learn it, and to learn to apply it in an appropriate way so that we might walk in the light as you are in the light. Give us wisdom, Father, that we might make good decisions. Help us always to make decisions that honor you and that glorify you. 
Help us, first of all, to seek your kingdom, your rule, your will first. And help us, Father, along the way, guard us from temptation and guide us in the paths of righteousness. Father, you've given us the wonderful, uh, wonderful ability to choose. Help us choose right. Help us to choose you in every, in every case. We're thankful that Jesus came into the world, that he shed his blood so that our sins might be forgiven, that he has made that possible for everyone. And we pray that all who are here tonight might choose to come to you through him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so